Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Phil Dave. Coming up this week on The Jewish Views, we have Justin Cohen, news editor for The Jewish News. He's in Israel and has been following Prince William's trip in Israel. Dame Esther Ranson talks to Phil Dave about her evening. Dame Esther Ranson in conversation with Miriam Margulies, OBE. And from America, we are talking to Karen Franklin, who is Director of Family Research at the Leo Beck Institute, talking about the untold story of the Lehman family and its aid to refugees between 1933 and 1945. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with Prince William's Middle East tour of Jordan, Israel and the Palestinian territories. He's the first royal to have visited the latter two. In Jerusalem, he met the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his wife Sarah, and he went to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Remembrance Centre. In Jordan, he had a tour of the ancient city of Jerash and posed for photos with Jordanian and Syrian children. The prince expressed hope for lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis as he went to the occupied West Bank. In Ramallah, he held talks with the Palestine president, Mahmoud Abbas. A Jewish couple who've been fighting for the right to have a civil partnership, something which up to now was only allowed for same-sex relationships, have won a discrimination ruling in the Supreme Court. Rebecca Steinfeld and Charles Keaton, both academics from Hammersmith in West London, were in court to hear the 2004 Civil Partnership Act declared incompatible with human rights laws on discrimination and the right to a private and family life. The BBC's current affairs presenter, Andrew Marr, has had a complaint against him partly upheld by the corporation after comments he made concerning Israel's actions in Gaza. In April, Mr. Ma said on his own show that there were a lot of Palestinian kids being killed by Israeli forces. The BBC's editorial guidelines state claims such as that should be well-sourced and based on sound evidence. After many years of controversy, the boss of El Al has finally said that orthodox men who create problems over seating on flights will be removed from planes. The announcement came after a major Israeli tech company, Nice Systems, announced it would no longer fly its employees on an airline that discriminates against race, gender or religion, and specifically mentioned actions that are taken against women. Just days ago, a New York flight was delayed by more than an hour as four Haredi men refused to take their assigned seats next to women. And just finally, Diego Schwartzman, the Jewish tennis player from Argentina, has been seeded 15 at this year's Wimbledon Championships. Diego, who's 25, will be taking part in his fourth SW19 tournament, though he's never got through as yet to the second round. This is the year, Diego. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Richard Ferrer, the editor of the Jewish News, and Richard joins us to review the copy of the Jewish News for this week. So what's on the front page, Richard? There's only one show in town, uh, and there's only one Jewish News editor out of town, and that's Justin Cohen, who uh, is also joining us for this paper review from... Where are you in Israel at the in moment? Jerusalem, aren't you, Justin? I'm in Jerusalem, yes, absolutely. He is wherever in, in Prince the, William the, is. The third day of the trip. 
So we have got obviously a front page story all about Prince William, but that's not half of it. We've also got 16 pages, a special souvenir supplement of this historic moment, the first time in 70 years of the history of the modern state of Israel that there's been an official royal visit. And our man out there has probably been on every official trip. Are you the only journalist in the pack that's been to every single place that the prince has been? I was on Tuesday, but there have been some occasions during the tour where it's been impossible to be at two places at the same time, or security has meant it's just not been possible. But yesterday I did what was described as the impossible in getting from Jaffa to Tel Aviv whilst the convoy was trailing behind me. I ended up running five minutes down Frischman Beach in order to get to the uh, occasion just on time as Prince William stepped out of his motorcade. And Justin, can we get some sense of perspective of just exactly how close you have been to his Royal Highness? Because you've uploaded some rather impressive photos on social media and I'm guessing you haven't had to use much of a zoom lens. No, well, I've only been using an iPhone. But yes, I have been up close and personal for a lot of the time. I think part of this learning experience has been part of the Royal Press Corps. And sometimes they take it in turns, basically, to be part of what they describe as a pool. If you're in the pool, you're in a good place. If you're not in the pool, you're not in a great place. So you need to get into the pool as much as possible. And the Royal Household were kind enough to let me into the pool for the key events in terms of our coverage. And they're aware what those were. And I had to press my case on several occasions. But yeah, I've been pretty up close and personal for, for some of the key moments. And for non-journalist speakers, we are not referring to the hotel pool here, are we? That would have been nice. <laughs> Justin, I know every Jewish person in England is really excited about this. How are the local Israelis reacting? I think my initial concern was actually that there wouldn't be huge interest because I think the idea of the monarchy of royalty, of antiquated old institution to some Israelis who are not necessarily the greatest followers of authority would just be something that wouldn't interest them. But also I've seen in the past when I've been in Israel, for example, when Prince George was born, there was a great deal of excitement. And yes, we've seen that on the streets in the past couple of days. There have been a couple of occasions that were kept secret until the very last moment, or as secret as you can when Israeli press are constantly leaking things, where the public have been able to get pretty close themselves. You know, there have been obviously security areas, they've combed the area, they've, they've made it as sterile as they possibly can in such a public area. But for example, when he went down to the beach on Tuesday to Frischman Beach. That was an incredible experience. I think one of the highlights of my career, certainly, to see the future King of England on the first official royal visit to Israel, seeing what Israel is really about. Well, one of the elements, of course, of what Israel is about, but an element that a lot of people don't see, this idea that Israel is not a one-dimensional entity, that there are many aspects of the country, from the beach to the tech side to the economic side, that people just don't see because from media coverage, it's often one-dimensional. It's often Israelis and Palestinians in constant conflict. Would you say his reaction to that was fairly obvious? Would you say that you could almost see him, I suppose, almost forming an opinion based on what most of us in the Jewish community know about Israel from having gone there ourselves? I don't necessarily believe that he had a one-dimensional aspect, but certainly seeing is believing. And like for anyone that gets to see Israel for the first time, I think it really does change opinions. Some of the press people that I've been with, most of whom I would say have never 
visited this country, had had the opportunity to see it for the first time here, and various journalists have said they'd like to come back themselves with their families, and in fact, Prince William himself has said that. The only unfortunate thing is, for a member of the royal family, for a future King of England, he can't really just call up, collect, travel, or West End travel, <laughs> sorry about those plugs, uh, tomorrow and say, I'm, I'm bringing my wife and three children along next week or next year. I think we may have to wait a while for the next visit. But I, I do think that this visit has really broken a taboo. The idea that you couldn't go for a royal visit without a major problem, without someone or something combusting, has been proven utterly incorrect and hopefully Prince Charles might be the next person to make this visit. I think it's only fair though to put your cards on the table Justin. It hasn't all been plain sailing has it? After all you did do an interview with supermodel Bar Raffaelli, <laughs> uh, did a video of yeah. her and forgot to press record? Yes, that, that was me. Yeah, yeah. It's um, on Facebook. I think there's there, there 0.5 of a second of it. I'm not entirely sure. We got half a word, I think, but we can hardly call that an exclusive. What we should do is we should focus, yeah. though, on what you have captured. And what has the Prince's itinerary been so far? Because I don't think we've really looked at that too much. There was the opening leg. I had the opportunity, the honour, in fact, to fly with His Royal Highness. I've written that those words many times this week. Apparently, I'm told by the other journalists in the pack that after the first mention of Prince William, they just referred to him as William. So I think we, we should do that as well. Let's go for the uh, more <laughs> informal approach. So Wills and I flew together on RAF Voyager from London to Jordan earlier this week on Sunday. It was my first time actually in a Middle Eastern country outside of Israel. I feel I should describe what it's like to fly on uh, on the royal flight because on the whole we didn't see prince william he was uh, behind a curtain with his team of i think about 10 people sharing around 50 or 60 seats between them at the front of the plane and we journalists about 25 of us were at the back of the plane but we did get a chance to hear from him briefly about an hour before landing when he came to the back and spoke to us after a very relaxed Prince William. I was quite shocked at that point, almost starstruck, because uh, it was the kind of Prince William kind of approach to a member of the royal family that you don't normally see. Uh, totally relaxed, talking actually on the whole about football. And I'm afraid I can't reveal a number of the things on uh, Jewish views because it'll go everywhere around the world if I do. And there were a lot of elements that were embargoed and that can never be used uh, where he was talking about his views on football and other uh, big issues. Also, he's talked a bit, a bit about his family. I think at that point, the reason for the focus on the football may have been because there was a certain concern about him even talking in any way about the places where he's, he's about to go to. I think probably he's probably more relaxed about that concept at this point, and those that are flying back with him on Thursday may hear a bit more about the content of the visit. That was our interaction with Prince William, and he actually said hello to me across the plane, across the aisles at one point, so that was very nice. He was introduced uh, to a few people that he didn't recognise from, from other royal trips. I digress, I think, slightly from your original question, which was, what was the programme? Well, we've nearly actually managed to use almost all of our time not necessarily talking about his trip to Israel, but I know that he was greeted by the chief rabbi of the UK, Ephraim Mervis. And so what have they been up to in each other's company? Well, the key parts of, of Rabbi Mervis' involvement are the visit to the Kotel, which we'll see on Thursday, and also the uh, visit to Yad Vashem, which was 
obviously the the most moving and uh, poignant moment of that trip but actually for prince william i think there was an extra dimension a personal dimension for him beyond his own commitment to remember the holocaust to pass on the lessons which he committed to in a speech this week i think for him the story of the holocaust is very personal in that his great grandmother Princess Alice was one of those honoured as righteous among the nations by Yad Vashem about 25 years ago for saving a family of six, the Cohen family. And during this visit, he also had an opportunity to meet some of their relatives, some of the people that owe their lives to his great-grandmother. And on the very last morning of the trip, Thursday morning, he'll also have an opportunity for the first time ever to visit the grave of Princess Alice. I was just about to ask that because she's buried at Hahatzeitim, isn't she? The Mount of Olives. That's correct, yeah. Justin, we're going to let you get back to some Sun. royal press duties, I think. I think you're going to get back to sunshine, actually, yeah. Justin. <laughs> we are all exceptionally <laughs> envious of your time in Israel, but hopefully you will have many more stories to tell in the, the days to come. If people do want to find out more and follow your journey along with His Royal Highness Prince William, where can we find out more about what you've written apart from the paper? Well, the website's been doing a live blog throughout every single day of the trip. Everything that Justin writes is in full online. Obviously, we've had to curtail some of it for space reasons in the paper. I think at last count, it's something like 10,000 words and counting that he's written. So I'm sure his first novel is probably somewhere in the making. But through all of it, I think the most important thing for me has been this trip from 3,000 miles away. It hasn't just been about decorum and duty and bureaucracy bureaucracy and I get the sense although Justin's probably far better positioned than me that in the years to come he'll remember this trip it won't just blur into the background as just one of a, a number of, of dutiful places he's attended on on behalf of the royal family I hope that's true no I, I, absolutely Richard I, I, I totally agree with that it's been historic for Israel for Britain for bilateral relations but I think also for Prince William for the royal family and for the UK Jewish community who have been calling for this to happen for 70 years. Well, Justin Cohen, live from Jerusalem, telling us about the royal visit. Thank you very much indeed. OK, Richard, well, apart from His Royal Highness Prince William being in Israel, what else do we have in the newspaper? Well, he's not the only distinguished British personality in the Middle East uh, in the last few days. Jeremy Corbyn has been in Jordan, and he's been saying a few things that I think have been getting the Jewish community's backs up. Never. As, as if he wasn't uh, fully, I don't believe that. fully versed in that skill. He has said something which actually Jewish leaders have reacted with quite bewildered reaction, I think, and quite concerned as well. He has suggested that the Palestinians should have the right of return. Now, as anybody with half an eye on the uh, Middle East knows, the right of return means the right of 700,000 or so Palestinians, families of descendants of back in 1948, who left the country when Israel was declared an independent state to return to Israel. And we're not just talking the West Bank here. We are talking internationally recognized borders of Israel within the country. So am I exaggerating when I say that he's saying 
virtually or Corbyn is actually saying that Israel should stop being Israel. Well, that's really the point, isn't it? If that is in fact what he is saying. Now, of course, bewilderment, because it's not entirely clear that he does mean that where he defines the actual state of Israel's borders to be. We've asked the Labour Party and they have said, and I'll quote, these rights are inalienable and guaranteed by the UN. The right of return implementation is a matter for negotiation. So it's a very waffly response from the Labour Party that doesn't actually define what he means. Of course, if he means the right of return for Palestinians, it does mean, as you say, Clive, the end of a demographically Jewish state of Israel, because there were 700,000 or so Palestinians who left. Of course, we have to remember there were 850,000 or so Jews from Arab lands who mm. left at the same time. So if you're going to implement a right of return, at least you should be doing it On in a balanced sides. way. So the Jews of Tunisia and Egypt and Morocco and all the others that fled should also should perhaps be seeking their their return to their countries. Right of return. Yes. Well, I in, disagree. In in light of the fact that we don't necessarily have any exact clarification for what this means, potentially it could mean that the Palestinians in question are so impressed with the state of Israel that they really want to go back and live there compared to what it was like 70 years ago. I think if you're going to be throwing around these these sort of words and this sort of language, you need to be doing it in a very responsible way and be quite clear what precisely you are saying. Jeremy Corbyn obviously knows exactly what he's doing here and he's looking for a grey area hmm. for us to be uh, concerned and to discuss so we're a little bit perplexed on this one and of course I think in any other week it would have ended up on the front page had Prince William not uh, be in, in Israel but yeah a concerning issue that's uh, reflected on page two of this week's paper now I can't help but spot out the corner of my eye a rather striking image that you have on page 12 and um, would you care to explain because you're a heck of a lot better at this sort of thing than I am who is in this image what they are portraying and and why you've got it in the paper yeah Gabby Dagoul, who's a, a young lady, a 28-year-old Jewish woman who had both her breasts removed to avoid deadly cancer, BRCA. She has put together this absolutely stunning array of uh, nine other women, including her own mother, who have performed this beautiful piece of, of modelling and showing off their 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 beauty and their boldness and their, and their bravery across the uh, page 12 of the paper. We made it quite large, quite big. I'm trying to describe an image. Uh, these are ladies who are naked from the waist up, their modesty hidden behind a beautiful silk scarf or robe, all wearing jeans and all kind of accentuating their beauty and positivity and, and showing that it's okay, you can get through this, you can survive, you can see light at the other side because they, they all look very kind of as a positive uh, and breathtakingly beautiful in their own way. And yeah. those with a very good memory may recall that both Gabby and her mother have actually appeared remember. on this programme yes. before. I was there at the time. That's yeah. right. This is a beautiful picture, actually, looking at that. It, it is a stunning mm. image. I, I would suggest readers take a look on page 12. And, and Gabby is saying it, it was her idea to help encourage other women facing radical preventative breast surgery and tell them that it's OK, you can do it, you can survive. Well, from one rather striking image to yet another, but this one seems to have quite a few more faces involved in it. 
Yes, we've got another beautiful image in the paper. Photographer Hania Pinnick has put together something called 70 Smiles, which is 70 faces of the Jewish community. Now, you might find some of these faces familiar. I can pick out people like Raymond Simonson, the head of the JW3, and Ben Helfgott, or Sir Ben Helfgott, as he now is. They and 68 others are profiled, smiling, radiating positivity and warmth, reflecting on the personalities of the Jewish community. And uh, this is going to be on display at Brick Lane's Old Truman Brewery until Monday and the artist says the images are reflecting the religious vibrancy and the secular vibrancy of adults and children across the UK and the Jewish community. Another very eye-catching image. And I believe you've got a piece in there regarding Ofsted and a religious school in Stamford Hill. Yesterday, Hatorah Senior Girls School in Stamford Hill, which had an Ofsted report out this week after it was inspected in March. It was good. It's now gone from good all the way down to inadequate. It's a pretty damning report for those, I think, that uh, are concerned about academic standards, particularly in the Haredi community. Now, so, the Sorry, Richard, is this where they're not teaching them secular lessons? like geography and history and all that sort of thing it's not just that it's a safeguarding issue as well i think that the ofsted inspectors have diagnosed there was one particular issue they were actually redacting the helpline phone numbers so they oh couldn't gosh. actually go outside of the community so generally. it's actually banned all sorts of secular things well i mean of course the uh, secular education things like geography biology history certain maths and english core subjects are obviously not issues i think that sit very comfortably with Haredi educators mm. so that's one issue but this is a state-aided school let's remember this is tax-funded school in, yeah. in in some part so the public has a massive responsibility and interest in, in what's going on behind those school gates and to remove the option for children to seek support is, is obviously something that the Ofsted inspectors found very worrying. Now, it has to be said that the school itself has, has called it a, a secularist plot, which uh, is perhaps a, a, a harsh reaction. And uh, Theo Biebelman from the school said that Hackney Learning Trust had said that the school was outstanding and said that also the Ofsted inspectors had downplayed its academic success over the years. Though we do have to, of course, stress that in the absence of anyone from the school here to defend themselves, which, by the way, they are more than welcome to do so on any edition in future on the Jewish views, it's important to stress that if that is what they claim, we have to take their word for it. You know, this is ultimately a very different beast to secular education and religious schools have their ways, they have their beliefs. And equally in the same way that we have Ofsted to try and monitor the way that schools are carried out, we also have laws that make sure that religious freedom is granted. And if for whatever reason that they believe that does not fall within their religious beliefs, then I think we should respect that as well. It's a very difficult uh, subject, I must say. Yeah, I wouldn't if, know where to if place it's a state it. Funded, I mean, the bottom line is, if it's a state-funded school, it has to fall within the remit of the national curriculum. Mm. They can't have it both ways. No. I understand that there are sensitivities at hand here, but that really is the bottom line. Yeah. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you to Richard Ferrer, editor of The Jewish News. But don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, when I say the name Dame Esther Ranson, what do you think of? Perhaps you think of Childline or even Silverline, which is her more recent of the two charities that she is known for setting up in and amongst a quite incredible broadcasting career as well. Well, it's a great privilege to say that I have had the opportunity to meet and to speak to Dame Esther about a forthcoming event that she's hosting in conversation with Miriam Margulies. And it's going to be held at the Royal Society of Medicine in London on Friday the 13th of July at 7.30pm to be precise. I have been speaking to Dame Esther to find out more about it and about her incredible work. I started by asking her to tell us, for those who might not know, exactly what Silverline is and why it was so important to her to set it up. Well, the Silverline is a helpline for older people, 0800 4 70 80 90. The number is very easy to remember because it's 0800, which means it's free. And then you say, who's it for? Oh, it's for 70, 80, 90. It's free, confidential, open 24-7. And in addition, we have Silverline volunteers called Silverline Friends who make regular phone calls once a week from their own homes to somebody who may not be talking to anyone else and who has rung our helpline asking for friendship. And in addition, we do conference calls, we call Silver Circles, for people who enjoy discussions, and they're also facilitated by volunteers. And in addition, we have Silver Letters for people with hearing impairment. And what we've discovered, because we get 10,000 calls a week on our helpline, is that some older people are desperately isolated, actually don't have anyone else to have a conversation with besides us. Some people want to talk us, to us about uh, things like bereavement or health problems or something they don't want to burden their family with. And burden is a name we hear often. I don't want to be a burden. And some people are separated from their families geographically, sometimes because the families are so busy. And even though they have families visiting them once or twice a week, that still leaves four or five days a week where they have nobody. And it's really bad for us to be without conversation. I noticed it with my own mum after my father died, that I, unless I rang her every single day, she got out of practice having conversations. And we need to talk and we need to listen. So that's what it is. And it offers friendship, it offers advice and information, but principally it offers a chance to share memories, have a laugh, 0800 70 80 90. If you go there and it's based in Blackpool, what you hear is laughter because the people who are answering the calls are really enjoying the conversations. And what I think so many people admire and like about Silverline is that fundamentally it's quite a basic concept, but it's such an important concept and one that is so easily, I suppose, forgotten by people of certain age and generation because they don't appreciate that maybe other generations don't necessarily appreciate and move with the times in the way that some younger generations do. It it really is. It's sort of harking to something so simple yet so powerful and effective. I think that's right. I mean, when I was brought up, 
My grandmother had four daughters, all of whom lived within a couple of miles of her. We saw her every weekend. She was an absolutely central part of our lives. And it was a very important relationship to me because I just loved our conversations. I loved talking to her about her youth. I loved talking to her, learning how to play patience, how to play canasta, go through the extraordinary souvenirs she kept because she was a bit of a hoarder. When you opened her cupboards, you always had to stand back so that the things could fall out. But she was the centre of the family. And that's two things I got from my own childhood. One was that, and the other was how precious children were and how valued they were. And so I suppose that is what has informed my work because to realise that there were children who were not only valued but were hurt by those nearest to them very often and to realise that older people were sometimes discarded, made to feel past their sell-by date. I found both those aspects of the way we live today quite painful and it's interesting how a conversation on the phone or in the children's case a conversation online can fill some of that gap. Now your career has often revolved around helping others and trying to I suppose to quote a Jewish phrase tick on alarm make the world a better place and to heal the world. Would you say that any part of your religious upbringing or the, the, your religion in your upbringing has influenced, even if it's subconsciously, the work you do do? Definitely. Definitely. I think that certainly my parents, my aunts, my extended family, well, if I look at what my mother and her sisters did, and remember, they were a generation when she died about, somewhere almost 20 years ago in her mid-90s. So you see, I mean, she, she is very much the older generation. She worked very hard for charities. She was the governor of a children's day nursery in the East End in her 90s. One of my aunts was a probation officer. The other aunt worked in the Berta Baron settlement. So, and one of them was very crucial to a psychiatric hospital as one of their friends and stalwart support, so that they all were giving back. All of them were giving back. And I suppose I just absorbed it. It's all you ever knew almost. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you'll be in conversation with another remarkable member of the Jewish community, I'm referring to the actress Miriam Margulies. Tell us a bit about the event and how this came up. I've been a friend of Miriam's since, uh, well, really, I first met her when she was at university. And I saw her so in a So quite review. recently then. Absolutely. And she was appearing with some of the famous goodies and people like that who became huge stars on television. But she was much funnier than they were. And then we worked together on a program and I wrote a Jewish mother monologue for her, which was loosely based on my mother. And that was huge fun. And having worked in the radio, she was at that stage very successful radio actor because she can do any accent, she can be any age. And her, in her commercial work, she's proved the same. She could be the voice of any inanimate object you care to name, or animate, and always loved her. 
And so uh, it was a delight that she agreed to do this for the silver line. If you are of a nervous disposition, you need to be aware that she's occasionally naughty. Nah, she's always naughty. And that's what makes her Graham Norton's favourite guest. And I know she's going to be terrific in this interview. What would you say is, and this is going to be a massive question to ask you to summarise, but I'm going to give it a shot all the same. Obviously, since the days of Child Lines founding, the world has progressed. Some, many would say it is for the better, mm. but there is still a long way to go. Mm. What would you still like to see changed in society as far as our attitude towards maybe those who are more vulnerable? Well, I think we have to make sure we're listening. Listening takes time. It means that you mustn't be distracted. There mustn't be other things in your life that crowd out the most vulnerable voices. When it comes to children, we have to make space for them. I think we've got to learn to be as adept in uh, surfing the internet as they are. A police officer said to me, you wouldn't allow a total stranger to walk in through the front door, walk up to your daughter's bedroom and be there alone with her. But that's what we're doing with the internet. We don't actually know who she's talking to and who's talking to her. When it comes to older people, I think that in social terms, we need to stop being so negative about old age, stop regarding older people as a problem, recognize older people as a fantastic resource, both in terms of our family lives and in terms of the way we organize society, because Charities would collapse if it wasn't for the input from older people. I think we need not to chop ourselves up into separate categories the way we are. You know, this is a place for older people. This is a television station for younger people. I think we need to share things together. We need each other. We can provide a great deal of strength to each other. And it's fun. This intergenerational stuff is fun. So I think we lose a lot if we don't enjoy each other's company. Just finally, and I'm so loath to ask you this because I don't want it to come across as an insult, but it's more out of respect to so much that you've given. Are you ever tempted to take it a little easier? Well, I get regularly lectured by my children who instruct me to take things a bit easier. But it's difficult, isn't it, when... There's so much happening that, you know, you could make a difference if you help them along. There are so many fun things to do. So, yeah, sometimes I look back and I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I hadn't done that, would it really have made a difference? But I'm afraid it doesn't seem to restrain me when I'm planning the next week and the week after that. Well, I think all too often the term beacon of the community is used but I wholeheartedly believe that it stands with your good self and it is not only a privilege to meet you but it's also a privilege to say thank you on behalf of anyone listening to this for all of the amazing work that you have done and continue to do thank you that's really kindly put and obviously I owe so much to the fact that I was born Jewish and I'm extremely grateful for it Dame Esther Ranson talking to me there about her forthcoming evening 
with Miriam Margulies, to be precise. It is called Dame Esther Ranson in Conversation with Miriam Margulies, and it is being held at the Royal Society of Medicine in London on Friday the 13th of July 2018. It's at 7.30pm, and if you would like any more information on how to obtain tickets for it, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. It's more than likely you've heard of the name Lehman from the Lehman Brothers, but what do you actually know about the family? I'm guessing you didn't know that they were instrumental in assisting hundreds of Jewish refugees fleeing Germany and Austria from 1939 to 1944. Well, to tell us more about it, we can now speak to Director of Family Research at the Leo Beck Institute, Karen Franklin. Karen Franklin, tell us about the untold story of the Lehman family. I am happy to do so, because you are absolutely correct that people think first about the Lehman Brothers firm that dissolved in 2008. And in fact, the story is much wider. And I will be speaking about it at the Spiro Arc on July 4th at 7.30 at the Central Synagogue, London. And the the talk about the, the refugees and the reason it's unknown is because of the overshadowing of the business dealings of the Lehmans. But because Governor Herbert Lehman, who was a son of the founder of Lehman Brothers, Meyer Lehman, because he was well-known and well-seen as the first Jewish governor of New York State, hundreds and hundreds of people wrote to him in the 1930s and early 1940s, questing up a David's support that were required to get a visa to the United States. And it was so many that what he did was he asked his niece, Dorothy Bernard, to work with a family foundation to assist these refugees to come to the United States and support them once they were here. And this kind of work just hasn't been reported, and that's what I've been doing with the family for the last eight years. How many people did he he rescue through this amazing work? Well, the family itself issued over 100 affidavits. This is remarkable because one was required to pledge financial assistance if required, and few families had the ability to make this pledge. The Lehmans had backing from the entire family. And the second reason why it was unusual is because it required a tremendous amount of paperwork and connections. And this is what the Lehmans were able to provide for these people. So In addition to the 100 personal affidavits, Herbert Lehman himself signed many, many more, I guess dozens more for politicians, leaders in the arts. And then he got hundreds and hundreds of additional requests that they simply were unable to respond to. And these were referred to refugee organizations. Now, he also called upon the president, President Roosevelt, to help. Was the president able to help? 
He was. The Herbert Lehman, Governor Herbert Lehman and the president were very good friends. And when there was one family that was just particularly involved in a mess regarding visa in France and they just simply couldn't get past it, Herbert Lehman wrote a letter to the president, my dear Franklin, explained the situation and President Roosevelt sent some of his State Department officials to see if they could untangle the mess to get the visa, which they did. Now, you're trying to track down some of the descendants of these people. Are you being very successful in doing it, or is it very difficult? Yes, I am. It's one by one. And what's so rewarding about this is that many of the descendants had simply no idea the amount of connection that the Lehmans had with their families. In one case last month, I discovered a woman whose grandfather had been assisted by the Lehmans to get out of um, Buchenwald, and she knew nothing about her grandfather and did not know that he was in a camp. And this is just one example. There must be many, many more. There are many, many more, yes. What is it that you're trying to do now that will bring the Lehman name back into great fame and, and people will know more about them? Right now, opening uh, next week, there is a uh, the Lehman Trilogy at the National Theatre. And it traces the arc of the Meyer Lehman and his brothers coming to the United States in the 1840s and their business success and then the fall of the company. And although, of course, there was greed throughout the financial world in the early 2000s, the Lehman Company was actually not owned or run by the Lehmans in 2008. So while the arc of the company and its demise is, in fact, true, the connection that's put on the family just simply is not the case. And so when you have the sense of the Lehmans were, didn't have integrity, were greedy, first, that's not true. But second of all, this is really a, a wonderful story, a wonderful history that actually documents Herbert Lehman in particular and his love of family, his willingness to help his family and immigrants come to this country. I found this morning a biography from his collection, which is housed at Columbia University. And I'd just like to read it, if I might, because it says something about politics today, as, as well as the philosophy and things he worked for in the 30s. As a senator, and he was a senator from 1950 to 1956, as a senator, Lehman faced many challenges. He opposed changes to immigration policies that would base quotas on national origin, arguing that such policies were racist and that family unification, occupational skill, and pleas for asylum were more important considerations. Where did your interest in this subject first come from, Karen? Well, I've always been interested in my own family personally, but I had worked for many years with the Morgenthau family. That's Henry Morgenthau, the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, uh, his son, Henry Morgenthau, who was secretary of the Treasury during the Roosevelt administration, and their sons and daughter, um, Robert Morgenthau, was district attorney of the city of New York for 34 years, retiring just relatively recently. And there was an exhibition at the Museum of Jewish Heritage for which I was guest curator. And among the documents that we found while we were working on this exhibition was one report 
of the Meyer Lehman Charity Fund, which was this foundation that the family had set up. And no one in the family really knew all that much about it. And they were more shocked than anyone to learn of the extent of their family's activities in bringing refugees out of Europe. And speaking as someone who is a little bit, shall we say, ignorant about a director of family research's actual job, perhaps would you just give us an insight into how this relates to what you do for the Liebeck Institute, how it all ties in? Right. It's a good question. I've asked myself that many times. Uh, the Leobeck Institute is a library and archive of German Jewish research, history, lives, and, and many of the people who use the Institute are family researchers. And so my job is to help them with finding their ancestors. Sometimes that goes beyond our collections, which are substantial and online. Sometimes it requires assistance in setting up a research profile plan of how to do their work and the families some of these major families were called our crowd that came in the mid 19th century have the richest histories and also um, contributed so much to the united states in, in a larger picture and so my job as family historian is is not just to help researchers but to put back together in an intellectual way the understanding of how these jewish families both in the united states and in germany fit into world history oh thank you very much indeed karen for telling us the story of the layman family and its aid to refugees and indeed that's what's taking place on the 4th of july at 7:30 at the central synagogue in london W1. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. The Torah portion Balak is one of my favourites, and within it my favourite scene is, of course, the talking donkey. People who know me well don't put it past me that one day I will bring a donkey to shul to live out the full experience. What's so fascinating is not the fact that the donkey talks, but what the donkey sees. The donkey's owner, Bilam, is a seer, a prophet, one who is supposed to perceive more than most of us perceive about the present and the future. That's why he's been hired for a significant fee by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. But on his way, the angel of the Lord stands to oppose him. Three times, we're told, Vatere Ha'aton, the ass, the donkey, saw. But Bilam himself failed to see. Being unable to perceive what even this animal can note, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks, apparently not to Bilam's surprise at all. And then comes the moment when God, Vayagal, God reveals, unveils Balaam's eyes, and finally Balaam perceives what his donkey had persistently noted. I find this fascinating. What is it that we fail to notice, that others around us, even the so-called dumb animals, may long have been aware of? What is it in our lives about those we love most, about people around us, that we never even noticed at all. People, when they've come through a serious illness, often tell me, well, a whole world was revealed to me. I, you know, I didn't know there were these facilities. I didn't know there were these kinds of 
suffering and I'll, and I'll see it in other people in ways I never saw before. In a way, for all his failure to perceive earlier, Balaam's eyes are enriched through his donkey. What is it around us, waiting for us to open our eyes and notice? That's why the morning blessing, thanking God for Pokeach Ivrim, opening the eyes and perception of the blind, opening us to what we fail to intuit, understand, note or care about in the world. That's why that blessing is so important. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from the New North London Resorty Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Justin Cohen in Israel, Damester Ranson and Karen Franklin. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.